0: Uh, today we're going to be speaking on the um, uh, day of rest of the Lord, which is a Sabbath day, all right? And before I get into the actual sermon, I want to go ahead and review a couple things about this day of rest that I just, I thought about before, like I say, before uh, getting prepared here. The first thing to note is that the Sabbath rest is one of the feasts of the Lord. You know, we covered three of the feasts of the Lord a little while ago. It is actually the first feast of the Lord from Leviticus 23. And I want to read you that. And the reason why I'm doing this is because as we talked about with those three feasts of the Lord, they are fulfilled in Christ. All of the feasts of the Lord are fulfilled in Christ. I want to go ahead and read the Sabbath requirement from Leviticus 23. Then I'm going to read you something from Colossians, and after that we'll get into the sermon. Leviticus 23 says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. Six days shall be, work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And then it says in the book of Colossians, chapter two, and it's verses 16 and 17, I believe. It says, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or uh, regarding a religious festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So as you see, the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We wouldn't need to go any further with this sermon than to just let you know that. I am gonna go further with the sermon though. But I thought of that because we did the feasts of the Lord And this sermon today is going to be more of a doctrine sermon, like the previous doctrine sermons, than something more flowery. I want you to know that in advance. It's a little technical at points, but if you understand this, then you will understand why people vary in their different denominations, what they believe about the Sabbath, and what is the correct view, in my opinion. So we'll go ahead and get started as soon as I put this down. This was found in a church bulletin. Tonight's sermon, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. I picked that specifically because I'm not really sure if that's what I want to do on my day of rest, okay? Speaking of our day of rest, though, let me read you a passage from the book of Matthew, and I want to see if any of you see the fuzzy logic of the people that are in this account and... I just want to see if you see what I see in this. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. This is Jesus. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Anybody see the same fuzzy logic I do? We got we we, we can't heal somebody on the Sabbath, but it's okay to go out and plot to kill somebody when they do good on the Sabbath. I just I, it strikes me and it's kind of a good lead-in to this talk on the Sabbath. But unfortunately, this type of thinking fits all of us in one context or another. And we all tend to get judgmental about this issue or that, especially when it comes to denominational mindsets. And when I say denominational, I mean, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a a Seventh-day Adventist or whatever. We start arguing over what we believe the Bible is saying. And of all of the denominational mindsets that people argue over, I would say probably one of the greatest uh, points of difference is the Sabbath. It's a, a very Uh, striking point in some denominations. Four prevalent views exist on the Sabbath and there are many lesser views as well. But the four views that most people hold to in Christianity as a whole are the seventh day Sabbath, the Puritan Sabbath, the Lutheran Sabbath, and the fulfilled Sabbath. And only one of these is going to be correct and therefore only one of these can be termed biblical for the Christian. We just have to determine which it is. But the problem with this is, and I assure you this is true, that the exact same verses are used by all four views. People that hold to a particular view, the exact same verses are used to defend their position. So resolving this dilemma is not something that is either easy or that will be agreed on by everybody in these different denominations. It is simply not going to happen. But as I said, I am going to give you what I believe the Bible teaches about the Sabbath, which it is, and as I said, we just read from Leviticus 23 and from Colossians 2, and it points to the fact that it is a fulfilled Sabbath. And that is the biblical model. That's what the Bible says, and so that's what we're gonna defend, but we'll go on from there. God created in six days, and as we're going to see in the upcoming verses, he rested on the seventh day. This set a pattern for the people of Israel to observe a Sabbath day as well. The people of Israel did. But the seventh day Sabbath was not only based on the creation account. It was also based on redemption. And this is a point that we will define as we get into the, the look at the Sabbath and how it fits into the week day life cycle of all of us and how we handle this biblically. As we look at these things, please know absolutely and for certain that this is not it is not a minor issue and it's for a number of reasons what god ordains is immensely significant to the believer if you believe that there's a god and that he's given us his word then knowing what is proper is very important and so we need to properly regard his word and his decisions, so that we are in the right uh context of what he has determined for us here's our text first for today It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Point number one is God's work. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh, seventh day from all the work which he had done <clears throat> then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made question for each of you what is the reason that you are here today now, you don't have to say it out loud but I will give you a couple possible options that I was thinking of why maybe some of you were here Some of you might be here because you simply want to hear a sermon and you want to fellowship with other Christians. Or you might possibly want to learn something about the Bible that you'd never thought of. Or maybe you say, I know I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday and Turtle Beach is the least oppressive place that I can think of. All right. Or maybe some of you feel guilty because you know that you're supposed to take off and you're supposed to spend it in some religious context, regardless of what it is. Whatever the reason, because you are here... You are not working. If nothing else, that much is certain. And this means that your time off from work is being spent in a religious context at this particular point. In America, we generally get two days off in America. And if we are a... A, uh, of a particular religion. Say, if we're a Muslim and we ask for a Friday off, they usually try to accommodate you. If you're a Jew or a Seventh-day Adventist and you ask for a Saturday off, they will usually try to accommodate you. Or if you say, "I'm a Christian and I want Sunday off," that doesn't happen as much anymore, but they still do try to accommodate you. A lot of the rest of the world does not get two days off, but pretty much everywhere that I have been in the world, and I've been all over Asia or Israel and some other places, they. Uh, will at least get one day off as they're working their week. And whether they take it and they work another job or whether they just take it off and go home to their family or whatever, the seven-day cycle is pretty much ingrained into every society that I have been in. And so the question is, is how we are spending our time in line with a day off in accordance with the Bible? And if so, how do we know? I've brought up the Seventh-day Adventists and they believe that a Saturday Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel is binding on us even to this day. Here's what their statement of faith says from their Adventist website. The seventh day, Saturday, is an extra special part of the relationship. The Bible from Genesis through Revelation describes the seventh day as one God has set aside for focused fellowship with his people. And then it goes on, it says the beneficent creator after the six days of creation rested on the seventh day and instituted the Sabbath for all people as a memorial of creation. The fourth commandment of God's unchangeable law requires the observance of the seventh day, the seventh Sabbath day as the day of rest, worship and ministry in harmony with the teaching and practice of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of delightful communion with God and one another. It is a symbol of our redemption in Christ, a sign of our sanctification, a token of our allegiance, and a foretaste of our eternal future in God's kingdom. The Sabbath is God's perpetual sign of his eternal covenant between him and his people. That implies that they believe they have replaced Israel, by the way. Joyful observance of this holy time from evening to evening, sunset to sunset, is a celebration of God's creative and redemptive acts. Now, the question is is this correct? Because if it is, if this is so, then everyone here who assumedly works from time to time on Saturday is going to hell. That's what they teach, and that's what they believe. First, Their statement about the Bible from Genesis through Revelation describes the seventh day as one God has set aside for focused fellowship for his people. That's completely false. And how somebody could put that on a website or how they could teach that denominationally, it simply amazes me. They also said here, the fourth commandment of God's unchangeable law requires the observance of the seventh day sabbath as a day of rest worship and ministry in harmony with the teaching and practice of Jesus the lord of the sabbath this mindset this particular statement that they've made comes from a confused theology about the work of Jesus Christ and it also comes from a misunderstanding about god how god himself works calling the seventh day sabbath one of god's unchangeable laws relegates god to the law not the law to God. Some things are a part of his very nature, such as moral issues, and that would be unchangeable because they reflect his very character. The Sabbath, in Jesus' own words, is not a part of his character. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. As you can see, God created the Sabbath For man, it is not a part of his nature and it is therefore changeable. Anything done by God for man is something that is by necessity not eternal in nature. Before God created, time didn't exist and therefore there was no seventh day and therefore there was no seventh day Sabbath. When we understand this, then we can properly evaluate the purpose of the Sabbath and how it pertains to us in the context in which God purposes it. What we need to do is start start first by reviewing the Sabbath law as it was given to Israel, who are the covenant people of God. In Exodus, we read the fourth commandment. This is Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. The fourth commandment is repeated in Deuteronomy, but the reason for the Sabbath is actually different, which is given there. This is Deuteronomy chapter five. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If you notice the difference, the first reason which is given in Exodus at the time that people were taken out of Egypt and uh, arrived at Mount Sinai was based on the creation account. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all the sea that is in them and rested on the seventh day. The second reason, which is given in Deuteronomy is based on the consummation of redemption and the promise of entering into his rest. It says, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm every single thing which is in the old testament is a picture of something that is greater coming in the person and in the work of jesus christ he is the true redeemer and he has provided complete rest which could only come about by him fulfilling the law which was given to israel the law was given to israel and it was given to israel alone and until the coming of christ The Sabbath was a sign. It was just like circumcision of the covenant law received at Mount Sinai and agreed upon by the people of Israel. Here's what it says, Exodus chapter 31. Speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you speaking to Israel. This is mentioned three times in scripture, and it is very, very specific. It was to be a sign between God and the Israelites as a part of the covenant law. So the question arises, are we, are we as Christians required to observe the law of Moses or not? And the answer to this question is the defining mark as to whether we must adhere to the law's precepts or not. And unfortunately. And again, we have many interpretations of that particular question. Some people will say, absolutely yes, we are required to observe the law of Moses. And then you'll get kind of the middle road who they say, well, we're partially required to observe the law of Moses. And then you get the people on this extreme that say, no, we are not required to observe the law of Moses in any way, shape or form. Now, the absolute yes People are the most confused of all because they stand on the Sabbath law, they stand on the dietary laws, and all these other laws, but they ignore the laws which tell them, well, you have to go up to Jerusalem three times a year and you have to sacrifice and you have to, you know, stone your son if he's disobedient and all these other things. They don't do those things. So it's a very confused theology to say that you are under that particular law. There are 613 laws in the Mosaic law, and you are obligated to bind. You are bound and obligated to observe each and every one of them. If you do these things, you will live by them, Moses said. So it is very important to understand that that is an immensely confused theology. The second people, the well, were partially under the law. They will attempt to make a distinction between the ceremonial laws and the moral laws, which are found in the law of Moses. In other words, the ceremonial laws are all the little things that they just don't want to do. Like, you can't wear clothes made of two types of material. Well, we don't need to worry about that one. But they they say, we are under the Ten Commandments because they're afraid that if they don't obey the Ten Commandments absolutely and perfectly, it will crush them. And so they're kind of, well, we're here, we're here, and they're not really sure. But unfortunately, the people that say we're partially under the law and we're under this moral law generally will pick and choose other parts of the law and they say, yes, we're not to do that, like no eating pork, okay? So they, they start picking and choosing what your denomination can and can't do, and it becomes bondage for the people within that denomination. The only sound option concerning the law of Moses, which means the entire body of law, including the Ten Commandments, which are a part of this law, is that it is not applicable to Christians today, there is no distinction made anywhere in the entire Bible between ceremonial laws and moral laws in the law of Moses. And the reason that this, that these are not applicable to us is because this is what the Bible teaches. The book of Hebrews states this explicitly three times, and it is implicitly, or it is implied many, many times, both in Hebrews and throughout the rest of the New Testament. In Hebrews 7.18, in Hebrews 10.9, it says the law is set aside in Christ and his new covenant. And then we have in Hebrews 8.13, it is said to be obsolete. Those are the three explicit times. And as I said, it's inferred many, many more times within the New Testament. When it says this, it is referring to the entire body of law and no distinction is made anywhere between what is moral and what is ceremonial. I've already said that, but I want to make sure you understand that. What we could not do in living out the law of Moses, Jesus did on our behalf. Here's what he said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Point number two today, he sat down. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus finished the work that his father sent him to do. And with his last breath, he acknowledged this to an anxious world that was lost in sin. And after that, he gave up his spirit, having paid the penalty that you and I owe and fulfilling the law that you and I could never meet. When Jesus died, the work was done. Perfect obedience from God's own son. The law complete, fulfilled by the Lord, and a new covenant was given in his blood. In his deeds, we find our rest. By faith in them, the only test. Who can bring a charge against God's elect when it is Jesus who saves by his grace? In the saved, no sin can the devil detect. Nothing can move us from our place. Resting then in his work alone on Sunday through Saturday, each day at peace. The glories of His work be known so that from our work we do cease what is it that we do when we finish a given task in the case of Jesus he sat down in the temple there were all kinds of furniture there was uh, an altar there were sacrifices that needed to be put onto that altar. There was a labor for washing. There was a table with bread that needed to be changed out at regular intervals. There was a lamp which needed to be filled with oil, and there was an incense altar that needed fresh incense. There were all kinds of things that the priest needed to be done, and this was done morning and evening, day in and day out, all throughout the year. So the priest's work was never finished, and therefore there was no chair in the temple. When a priest reached retirement age, there was someone there to replace him. And the cycle continued on without any interruption. What happened in the temple was very similar to what happens in an auto assembly line right here in America. Day in and day out, cars are made and people put them out. They spend their lives building these cars and they're putting out new cars every single day. No matter how many cars they make, there will always be a need for more cars old cars wear out. Sergio and Rhoda get in an accident. (laughs) New people are born and they turn 16 years old. And so the cycle keeps going on. And it's the same with the law. Day in and day out, sinners are born into sin. Sinners keep sinning. The law keeps on being broken. And the work of the priests is never done. Every Saturday, the people would rest in acknowledgement of God's creation and of his redemption, but they never really entered that rest. As we'll see a little bit later in the 95th Psalm, which I read before we started today, the work went on and the need for something greater still lay ahead. Now, here's a question. Suppose the cars never broke down and everyone that had a car was happy with it and nobody ever had accidents. And there were no 16 year olds coming along that needed new cars, right? What would happen? Eventually there would be a day when no more cars would be needed. The workers would probably have a big party to celebrate that they'd made the last car and then they'd all go home and they'd sit down. This is what happened with the law of Moses. It was designed specifically with the purpose of ending if it could be fulfilled. But until it was, it kept steaming along from day to day. Enter Jesus Christ. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets are as binding today as they were at the time of Jesus. Not a letter, not a brushstroke will ever fall from the law, and all people are bound under the law. So if so, why am I arguing that we're free from the law? Because this is what Paul argued in the New Testament. Not that Paul over there, by the way. If you are in Christ, the law is set aside in Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law, which we couldn't otherwise fulfill. And the last sin was atoned for. The last car on the assembly line was all finished up. And the law was made obsolete for those who followed Jesus. When he finished his work, Jesus Christ did something that no other priest from the time of Aaron all the way down had never done. He sat down. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, my very favorite verse in the entire Bible, looking unto Jesus, or if you read the NIV, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is right now at the right hand of the throne of God there in the most holy place and he is sitting down. His work is complete and he promises the same for any person who by faith in his work acknowledges him as Lord and by doing so they overcome the work of the devil and they also overcome the law of Moses and they are granted peace with God. Jesus gave us the wonderful words of release right in the book of Revelation. He said, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So what does all of this have to do with the Sabbath? As a part of the Old Testament law, it is obsolete in Christ. I've said this, what, five times? I'm going to keep saying it because I want you to understand this. The only laws which carry over from the Old Testament into the New Testament are those which are restated in the New Testament and in the New Covenant. And this is a covenant which was initiated on the night of Jesus' crucifixion and it was confirmed when he died on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, anything recorded in the Gospels up until that moment is a part of Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf. And only that which is restated as binding after the cross is a part of the new covenant. And the Sabbath is not. No, we cannot murder. The new covenant says so. Yes, we can eat pork. The New Testament says so. No, we can't steal. The New Testament says so. Our doctrine in life and as Christians is From the new covenant, which was sealed in his blood. Once again, at the cross of Calvary. The Sabbath is a part of the old covenant. It is not a part of the new covenant. It was based on God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. And both of those are answered in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the redeemer. And in him, we are a new creation. And both of these are directed right to the cross of Calvary. Look at it this way. Israel was working six days, one, two, three, four, five, six, and they rested on the seventh day. And this can be equated with the anticipation of rest, which they were looking forward to. Biblical Christians follow the pattern that is set in the New Testament, where they worship on the first day, and then they go about their work. They worked in order to rest, and we rest in order to work. And this can be equated with the fulfillment of rest, which we look to back on. In other words, the cross of Calvary is the central focus of the faith, whether it's looking forward by Israel or whether it's looking back by the church. Jesus Christ sat down on his father's throne and he promises that anyone who overcomes will have the right to sit with him. And guess what? If you have called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, You are already sitting with him positionally. Here's what it says. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, past tense, by grace you have been saved, past tense, and raised us up together, again, past tense, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in christ that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in christ jesus the work is done when jesus finished his work he sat down when we trust in jesus christ we are seated with him and so praise be to god he sat down point number three today is we who believe in the book of hebrews The author goes into very, very detailed information about the work of Jesus Christ and the superiority of his covenant over the covenant of Moses. And then he goes and he quotes the 95th Psalm, which I read you earlier, to make a point about God's Sabbath rest. Now, this is going to get a little confusing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say this is where Hebrews is, and this is where King David is 700 years before, and this is where Joshua was 500 years before David. And then if I go like that, that means that's back at creation. Okay, so I, I want you to kind of get a picture of that right now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me tried me and saw my works for 40 years therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways so I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest in what takes very very considerate thought the author of Hebrews quotes King David right here from hundreds of years before his time and he says today And in most translations, you will see that today is capitalized because they want to stress the importance of what's being taught here. And then he spends all of the rest of chapter 3 explaining who the disobedient were back at the time of Joshua and in the wilderness wanderings, and how they failed to enter into God's rest. And then starting with chapter 4, he says this, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith by those who heard it. If King David said today here, when he wrote the 95th Psalm, then he was speaking from his point onward, and he was saying that the word had to be mixed with faith. But Paul explains elsewhere that if those who are of the law, this period back here, if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void and the promise is of no effect. In other words, it is faith which brings us into a right relationship with God, not with the law. In other words, it is faith and it is faith alone in what God promises that brings his people into a state of rest, not the law. And so the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 4, And if everybody could underline this in their Bible, remember this verse and memorize it in case you ever have a question and get into a debate with a Seventh-day Adventist or any Sabbath-worshipping Christian who says you must have a Seventh-day Sabbath. This is the verse right here. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Go back to King David. If he says today, capital T right here, at his time, then the promise of a rest was still an open issue. And it could not have been consummated at the crossing of the Jordan all the way back at the time of Joshua or at any time from there up to King David's time when he was alive. It was present today at the time of David. And it was present, guess what, at the time of the New Testament as well because that's what the author of Hebrews is speaking about today if you hear his voice. This is what God asks of us, to receive the works of his son by faith and to acknowledge that he is Lord and that by his unmerited favor, we stand justified in everything that that law back here could never justify us in, including the Sabbath day observant. In fact, if we go back and if we try to remix in that, if we try to add in the Sabbath day, then we are remixing in the law with the grace that has already been bestowed upon us when we call on the name of Jesus. And in our next point, we will see the error in that type of thinking. And here we are at the next point. Point four, a day of rest. Do you remember when I started out today, I said that only one of the four Sabbath options is correct. And Paul could be no clearer in the book of Romans about the days of the week. You got seven days in the week and how we handle them. Here's what he says. One person esteems one day above another. That means he likes to worship on this particular day. Another esteems every day alike. He doesn't have any particular day that he worships on. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. In other words, we are living in faith, observing our life to the Lord. We've been instructed by Paul in that particular verse to be fully convinced in our own mind about the propriety of elevating any day above another. In other words, demonstrating faith in the convictions of what we are doing. To sit in a church that mandates a Sabbath, and I don't care what day of the week, if they say it's a Saturday Sabbath or a Sunday Sabbath, or you have to come to church, that is not demonstrating faith. So even if you're simply going to church out of compulsion, you're not demonstrating faith. And Paul uses circumcision as a benchmark for understanding the work of Christ when he says this in the book of Galatians, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. That means that here's what was happening. He's writing to the Galatians. They have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and savior. And then some Jewish people came up who had received Jesus Christ themselves. And they're saying, listen, you're not circumcised. If you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. And Paul says this to them. Every man who becomes circumcised, that means out of compulsion, out of fear that they're told you have to observe this part of the law, he is a debtor to the entire law. You who have been become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith circumcision was a sign of the covenant between israel and god just as the sabbath was a sign and just as every man who becomes circumcised is a debtor to the entire law because they're mixing the law back into their faith so is any man who tries to merit god's favor in any other respect of the law any other respect of law including the sabbath day or pork, or any other thing which is set aside in Christ. If you feel compulsion to observe that part of the law, then grace is nullified in you, and that's what Paul is saying. Circumcision is now a neutral issue. It is not a neutered issue, okay? Let's get that straight. It is a neutral issue. If any of you wants to circumcise your children, because of health reasons, then cut away. There's no problem with that at all. But if you are circumcising your children or you are yourself considering circumcision because of the law, then grace is nullified and you are a debtor to the entire law. And this is exactly the same consideration as the Sabbath. If you are doing it to fulfill the law, and this is the third time I've said this and I'm saying it so that you remember this, you are a debtor to the entire body of law you have fallen from grace and your deeds will testify against you at the day of judgment. That does not mean you lose your salvation, but your deeds will testify against you when you say, I tried to merit your favor when Christ had already given you his favor. Our day of rest then is God's day of rest, the seventh day. Don't get confused in what I just said though. Unlike the other six days that are in creation, which say evening and morning were the first day. I don't know if you remember, we've gone through all of the original creation account. It said evening and morning were the first day. Evening and morning were the second day. Evening and morning were the third day. All the way through the creation of man and then it said evening and morning were the sixth day. Guess what? The seventh day account says nothing about evening and morning, and therefore it is an eternal day. It is the day that was being spoken about at the time of Joshua. It is the today that was being spoken about at the time of David. It is the today that Hebrews was speaking about 2,000 years ago, and it is the same today that we are living right now. The seventh day says nothing about evening and morning. It is an eternal day. Here's what it says from the book of Hebrews. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, meaning this day, this eternal day, this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the today that was present for David and it is obviously awaiting fulfillment and realization. God's rest, which occurred on the seventh day, was open to Israel and it remained open all the way through, even to us today. Here's what it says from Hebrews again. For if Joshua had given them rest, these people back here, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day, meaning at the time of David. There therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. Jesus Christ ceased from his works and he sat down we cease from our works by calling on the name of Jesus Christ and we sit down with him. So of the four major Sabbath views that I addressed, I only specifically refuted one, which was the seventh day Sabbath. And the reason why is because there's no need. If this fulfilled Sabbath refutes the seventh day Sabbath, then it also refutes the Puritan and the Lutheran Sabbath. This is the answer to it. The book of Leviticus showed that it is a feast of the Lord. Colossians says they're fulfilled. And the past 25 or 30 minutes have been demonstrating how that was done in Jesus Christ. It is fulfilled. It is set aside. We do not observe a Sabbath day because we are currently, right now, living in our Sabbath rest. It is God's eternal day. So if you wish to come to church on the beach, and I hope every one of you comes back next week, you are welcome to. If you want to set aside a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday, if you set them all aside, you're never going to get any work done and you're not you know, you're know, not going to be able to pay your bills. So don't do that. But if you set aside whatever day of the week you want, then you may do so. And if you don't set aside any day and you just walk around all day praising the Lord, he is satisfied with that as well. Let each of you be convinced in your own mind and without compulsion what the Lord puts on your heart concerning his work and resting in what he did and what he did alone. And one final point, point about the seven day creation pattern. I mentioned this before in the millennial kingdom talk we did. I wanna help you understand this is a picture of what God was doing. He created for six days and he rested on the seventh day. The Bible says in Psalm 94 and 2 Peter 3:8, I believe it says, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And that is emblematic of the 7,000 years of human beings living on planet earth. We have 6,000 years of man working, doing what he's trying to do. And then here comes Jesus Christ. And that will be the millennial reign of Christ. The last, yes, amen. The last thousand years of man's time on earth will be sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ as he rules the nations from Jerusalem. And guess what Isaiah calls that time? I read it right before the sermon here. He calls it his place of rest. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, who is Jesus, who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Those who have already received Jesus Christ have entered into that day of rest in advance of the millennial kingdom. As we live out our lives, each one of us should hopefully acknowledge this to his glory. And next week, we're gonna see how the fulfilled Sabbath, which I've been talking about here, is actually prefigured when Adam was put into the Garden of Eden. Believe it or not, it's right there. Guy named John Salehammer says this, and this is just a little taste of what we're gonna talk about next week. I am so excited about next week and the week after that. The man was put into the garden where he could rest and be safe. And the man was... Put into the garden in God's presence where he could have fellowship with God. What should never cease to amaze any one of us is that what we had, we gave up voluntarily, rejecting God's authority over us and determining to do it our own way. And yet, and in despite of this, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to right the wrongs and to lead us back to him through the work that he did and the cross that he endured. He sat down His work complete. Christ sat down on his heavenly seat. Jesus fulfilled the law for Adam's seed and sat down with the father on his throne. Where Adam failed, he did succeed. To the world, let his victory be known. Christ sat down his place of rest glorious and to each he offers a place as well. The Lord prevailed for each of us and ransomed fallen men from the clutches of hell. Hail to the all majestic and glorious king. To him let the redeemed of the ages sing. Spotless and pure in the finest gown. Praise to the Lord. He sat down for all eternity. Sing his renown. Hallelujah. Christ sat down. Let's take a moment and enter the cross of Jesus Christ together. Jesus died on a cross to pay the sin debt that we all owe. Every one of us has sinned in our lives and Jesus Christ gave his life up after fulfilling that law that we've been talking about. He went to the cross voluntarily and he shed his own blood establishing a new covenant where we can have eternal rest with him by simply calling on his name and saying, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and I accept what he did on my behalf. Each one of us has a choice. We can either do this on our own, we can try to work our way to heaven and we will fail or we can put our trust in Jesus Christ and what he did, the great and marvelous King of the universe who humbled himself and endured the shame of the cross for our behalf. And so I would ask any person here who has never, and I don't care if the youngest child here or the oldest person here, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he will wash away your sins and he will lead you to eternal peace with his Father. Because of his cross. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for what you did, for fulfilling the Sabbath for us. And so we rest in you at all times and we marvel at your work and what you've done. What a great and what an awesome God you are. How splendid you are to humble yourself and to do this on our behalf. And I pray that if any person here has never uttered the words, Yes, Jesus is Lord, and I believe that God raised him from the dead then I would ask they do that today. And I'd ask that each person here be safe and secure as they go home. Each person will have a good week ahead and each person will remember to praise you in their ongoing state of rest for the great deeds that you have done on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your glorious name we pray, amen.